This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. And all that jazz. Welcome to the artists. As Godard said, you don't make a movie, the movie makes you. In our movie-making profession, the workings of Murphy's Law is always at its best. In these candid conversations, we unravel those challenges that define the makers in the movie-making business. Hope these chats will inspire and elevate you to keep fighting for your dreams, but with a mood of reality check on it. I'm your host, Suchita, and this podcast is brought to you by Metaphysical Lab. Enjoy the show. How can mathematics design our creative thinking? How did Beethoven and Bach use maths in their music? Was it conscious or unconscious? Before I introduce our guest to you, let me spell out what I discovered this week, which I definitely encourage you to listen to. One, of course, Beethoven, which I have been listening to. But I discovered a beautiful piece by Bach, which is a cello suite number three in C major, which I'm actually continuously playing in the loop. And you should definitely check that out on YouTube or Spotify. And now for our guest for today, we have Marcus G. Miller. Marcus is a jazz musician who uses mathematics in his music. Marcus takes us through his journey of how mathematics has enabled him to work on the logic and the creative side of the music and also polish his combinatorial skills. You can find him on his website, imaginewithmarcus.com. Marcus is also given TED Talks, which we're going to put in the description below. Hi, Marcus. Welcome to our podcast, The Artist. And it's so lovely to have you. Uh, how is it going there? Uh, it's, I mean, it's really intense. We're right in the middle of COVID, but luckily I'm fine. As an artist, I'm, I'm happy being inside and, and working on my art. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Marcus, you have uh, done, you're a mathematician from Harvard, and now you're also a jazz musician. Tell me, how did mathematics design your thinking? So, um, what I got from training at Harvard in mathematics was uh, the ability to think very logically and the ability to match uh, logic and creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, philosophically, math is, uh, math is just an exercise in logic taken to an extreme. That's one view of it, right? You start with some axioms that, uh, you start with some axioms and then everything is just kind of, uh, it's just logical transformations on these axioms. If, uh, if then statements. If this is true, then by deductive reasoning, this must also be true. And there are certain points, and that's a very high level view, there are certain points where that's not true or that's not the best way to understand things. Um, but uh, in dealing with it, particularly the Harvard math program, um, you get a, a very deep kind of training in in being able to execute this, these, these logical uh, these logical. Um, logical processes and transformations through proofs. Now, the other way to look at it is uh, from a creative standpoint, right? Right. Inside of, right, inside of these, uh, inside of, you know, whatever mathematical structures you're studying, mm-hmm. there will be certain patterns or there will be certain formula or there will be certain things going on. Mm-hmm. And um, from a creative standpoint, 
you have to understand them and be able to kind of play with these abstract ideas in your mind and uh, and generate uh, new ideas, new solutions, and that kind of thing. Um, and creativity in that sense is um, is really needed because sometimes just a linear chain of logic doesn't get you to where you want to go. You have to think about something different. You have to change perspective. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in particular, in that creative process, there's also a collaborative process because if you're around people who are focused on the same problem and you're able to talk to them, mm-hmm. you gain different perspectives. So, uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was a really kind of remarkable, um, remarkable opportunity to, to learn to think in um, very clear logical terms as well as develop a creative faculty for how to see um, how to see things. Mm-hmm. And of course, that has made you uh, a better musician, a better jazz musician. Uh, would you like to elaborate? How did how how's the application of mathematics helping you in creating jazz? It's this creativity aspect. It's being able to look at things from different perspectives um, mm-hmm. really fast. It's the ability to uh, listen to a piece of music and hear inside of what's being played uh, a bunch of uh, different options um, to play over to create um, say if I'm you know if I'm on the bandstand and I'm listening to what a, to what a rhythm section is playing um, lots of different different ways of, of thinking about what possibilities are, there are in a, in a musical situation um, as well as when you find something new that you're sensitive to, right? Okay, I didn't realize that there was this uh, relationship between um, the the bass and the drums. I didn't perceive that before. Mm-hmm. All right, well, how do I quickly get to understand that and bring it into my playing? Right, developing that kind of speed and that kind of mental flexibility um, mm-hmm. is is yeah one of the amazing applications of of mathematical thinking. I think to to music and to jazz music in particular. Hmm. So it's more like uh, combinatorial skills that enable that it enables to develop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can think of it as as, as a combinatorial thing. Um, it's in the moment. I mean, the, the cool thing about it is that in the moment, I'm not I'm not doing um, calculations and I'm not doing processes. The ability to the ability to do those transformations is kind of already within my fingers and my playing. Um, and you know the way. At a certain point, it's like if I hear an idea, I can manipulate it really fast and you know do things to it so it comes out. Um, but that's that's spontaneous. And frankly, that's kind of the way you know um, a lot of mathematical conclusions are reached. You struggle for a while and you try to figure out ways, and then you're just kind of playing with the idea, say walking around somewhere, um, and it's like, oh, that's what it is, and it just kind of comes in a flash. So there's this notion of of being inspired and having trained your mind to be a vessel for the inspiration, I would say. So it's mainly like your unconscious already gets trained and attuned to it. And so when you actually get into your musical compositions, it automatically uses that insight. Exactly. Tell me, Marcus, so I have been reading a lot about you as well, trying to understand things more deeply. I saw your your brilliant TED Talk and I was like, oh my God, this is so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so I heard it again, you know, and I said, what am I missing, you know? Um, uh, so also I heard your brilliant uh, the music session, jam session with uh, your uh, pianist friend, uh, is it yeah. Eric? Eric? Uh, yeah, Lewis. Eric Lewis. Yeah, yes. Eric Lewis. It was brilliant. I'm going to attach both the links uh, in the description as well. You know, you've mentioned something like uh, math has trained you to recognize patterns uh, in terms mm-hmm. of randomness and queuing theory. Would you like yeah. to elaborate on that? Sure. So, 
Um, randomness and queuing theory are, you know, very specific aspects and and uh, they're very specific ideas in mathematics. They're well defined and they're well studied. Um, when I think about randomness, um, I think about I think more generally, almost philosophically, about well, um, chaos and one of the one of the things that I think creates aesthetic beauty is the ability to bring order from chaos and it's funny because it's not necessarily the order itself it's kind of observing the process of, of wrangling a bunch of different chaotic elements and 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 presenting them within structure so um, so randomness is uh, so then one of the ways that you can do that, and one of the ways you can become sensitive to that is by, you know, looking at something that is disordered, say a cluster of notes or an idea that's not fully developed, and um, and then playing around with it until there's some there's some deeper order and structure around it. Um, and if you can do that process, uh, you know, playing motivically, say improvising motivically in real time, um, you know, can create uh, can create a particular effect on an audience. Um, dealing with uh, playing against or composing around different kind of rhythmic or harmonic motifs or melodic motifs, um, and then being able to. Uh, from from that kind of uh, base matter, create um, new ideas uh, once again in the moment, in real time improvisation. Uh, that that creates you know in the audience um, and in the observer this kind of feeling of inspiration um, that that I like to tap into. And then you know cueing theory is interesting. One of my one of my mentors while I was at Harvard was actually a Princeton professor named. Um, uh, Bill Massey, mm -hmm. and um, and he's a he's a very brilliant man. Um, undergrad from Princeton, PhD from Stanford. Um, studied a, did a postdoc at the Quran Institute at NYU. Worked at Bell Labs um, for twenty years, which was in the twenty years he was working there was a major hub of technological innovation for uh, for a lot of industries. Mm -hmm. um, and then and is now uh, is now back at Princeton, um, tenured professor in. Um, in operations research and uh, and um, financial engineering department of operations research and financial engineering, he's a he's a uh, his his topic of study is queuing theory, mm -hmm. and um, and so you know kind of my my experience with queuing theory is more from kind of sitting with him and um, and learning from him. It's not something that I use so much in music. Queuing theory started as trying to solve the problem about, uh, solve a problem around call centers, because he's working at Bell Labs, which is a, a telecommunications company, um, or Bell um, was a telecommunications company, and this was their lab, right? This is where they put all of this, their smartest people to figure out how to innovate telecommunications. Mm. Oh, Marcus, tell me, you know, I was going through these, uh, you know, trying to get more research in music and math and I came across this beautiful video uh, where they've explained how Beethoven's mood light sonata and math is connected and I, I believe you saw the video as well uh, yeah. what did you what did you think about it did you think Beethoven was thinking mathematically and constructing the music no I don't think Beethoven was thinking <laughs> mathematically I, I saw the video and yeah. they, uh, they they made an interesting point about um, the the sounds uh like a note um, 
basically is a sound wave and waves are modeled mathematically um, and that you get what's called consonants when you have uh, certain notes played together because of the nature of their wave structure. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Beethoven at the time that he was writing Moonlight Sonata was doing um, was doing cal- was doing trigonometric calculations mm-hmm. um, and and figuring out you know matching the sine waves in order to in order to construct the piece of music and in fact the musical structure that they that they selected in order to to make their point in the video um, was talking about a, a, a triad uh, mm-hmm. I think a D major triad and. D major triad has been around in music for a while, um, way before there was a lot of mathematics to to explain it, or way before I guess composers were were using were, were going to the mathematics in order to find it. I mean, you know, if you are in composition school, right? It's like, all right, cool. Here's a D major triad. You play D, you play F sharp, you play A. Here's how it sounds. Learn it. Learn to invert it. Learn how it feels, and and, and that kind of thing. Um, and, and and so um, there's this notion that you know because Beethoven was was going deaf um, he must have used something outside of music in order to propel his music forward and I think no I think he was actually just that brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that if you train in music long enough and I think if you train in anything long enough mm-hmm. um, you begin to develop a faculty where you can express uh, you can express whatever you would need external sources for kind of internally. There's a thing that shows up in, um, in practicing an instrument, let's say, where um, if you sit and think about uh, playing an instrument, say if you have some music in front of you and you just read a piece, you don't necessarily have the instrument in front of you, and you imagine, um, you, you imagine the piece being played perfectly, so you just have a, a perfect image of it, a mental image of it, mm-hmm. and then you also take some time and imagine that your body is playing the piece perfectly. When you sit down at the instrument again, um, your faculties will have improved. And this is a trick that I use all the time um, mm-hmm. when I couldn't necessarily practice and I'm on the train, all right, cool, I wanna play this. Um, let me imagine myself playing this. Or let me imagine myself working through these exercises and then when I sit down with my instrument, um, I can play it faster. I've, I've already, I've cut down on some of my practice time. I think that's kind of how Beethoven was doing. It's like, I know how D major sounds, um, mm-hmm. I can write it down. I know how this chord progression sounds because he was a brilliant musician before he started going down. So he was just so familiar with the language um, and grammar of music that um, by uh, by dint of his mental image, he was able to produce his work. Now that's still very difficult. Usually, most composers, um, even yeah, most great composers, still need to check themselves, and so that he could. Uh, get away with that, that he could just produce um, without um, having to check himself at the piano, without necessarily being able to check himself at the piano or, or, or any other instrument is really remarkable, let alone the fact that in this time he also changed the, the he started a revolution in um, Western classical music at the time, um, going from uh, going into the Romantic period. So yeah, from, from the class from what's called the classical period into the into the Romantic period. So yeah, Beethoven is um is 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 very brilliant. But I don't think you need to reach for uh, an explanation outside of music to to account for it. Uh, Bach, on the other hand, I think was using number quite explicitly, mm-hmm. um, and that shows up in. Um, and I think that when usually the, the math music connection when people want to reach for uh, somebody who connected math and music and Western classical music, I think Bach is a, I think Bach is a prime example. 
Um, I think some of it is unconscious. So there's one idea of kind of the transformation on the lines that he did. Um, so he'd have an idea, and then he would, in order to create um, har- uh, create a sense of um, a sense of unity in the piece, stylistic unity mm-hmm. um, and motivic unity, he would take that same line and he would turn it upside down and find ways to make the upside down version work and then the backwards version work and then just make these small modifications um, that really feel like uh, when you're analyzing his pieces really feel like very clever um, geometric transformations, right? Like if you had some kind of shape, you're rotating it, you're inverting it, you're taking the mirror image, you're turning it upside down, you're translating it in space or time um and in particular he would translate these things in in like harmonic space um, or rhythmic space something would fall on a different beat and it would create a whole different feeling when it comes in um but in but in addition to that he would use numbers explicitly um one of the ways that you use numbers in music is not in say harmony or notes but in structure so Mm -hmm. a lot of reason why a piece of music might feel good is because uh, things happen, moments of change um, happen at different points in the piece. And if they happen sooner than that, it would feel awkward. If they happen later than that, it would feel awkward. But trying to determine the, the right amount of time can be a very calculated process. Um, and one of the tools that Bach uses is the golden ratio. Um, and, uh, and he would use this very explicitly. Um, if, uh, yeah, yeah, he would use this very explicitly. So like golden ratio point, he would do something where there would be some chord in the piece that hadn't appeared before. There would be some major transition into a new section of the piece. Or he would do things like um, spell his name in notes or make some reference to the Bible um, in, um, in notes in terms of how he modulated and used keys and things like that um, at the golden ratio point. So, uh, so Bach definitely used. What's, um, what's a, a golden ratio, Marcus? What's, what's the golden ratio? Oh, golden ratio. Oh, this is great. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so the, the golden ratio fee is this is this number. It has a uh, it has a uh, approximate numerical value of like one point six one eight. Um, but it's an infinite repeating decimal. It has an exact value of um, one plus the square root of five, all divided by two, um, and then it has a, a counterpart of one minus the square root of five, um, uh, all over the all over the uh, all over two. And it's uh, it shows up in a lot of aesthetics for some reason. Um, it's it has the prop it has a geometric property that itself similar. Um, it's really easy to draw. It's really clear if you draw it. It's hard to say in words. I'll try to give you a, a brief explanation in words on what it is but if you have a line and you divide this line into two portions and you and if you're trying to construct the golden ratio from this line what you want is that um, the length of the line the ratio of the whole length of the whole line to um, the first section is equal to the ratio of the first section to the second section so it's this kind of self-similarity and um, the golden ratio shows up uh, as it, 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 for some reason aesthetically we like it, and it shows up in um, in all kinds of architecture and music. But it also has these kind of mystical overtones, um, and in particular the, in the Gnostic tradition, in the Gnostic Christian tradition, it is. Uh, 
it's kind of the solution to the to the the paradox of the holy trinity um right like the idea of and the gnostics were were christians who weren't um who were who also kind of who were also borrowing from different ancient and mystical traditions so they weren't they were kind of apostate with respect to the catholic church in the early days um and a lot of their books and knowledge were hidden and taught in mystery schools and you know uh, taught in like parable and legend and that kind of thing um but they would solve the holy trinity by saying all right well how do we account for this Christian idea that God is the Father, but God is also the Son. Well, he's self-similar, right? He's the whole line to the ratio of the the God is the whole line, and the first first section is the is the Son, and then the Son is and the Son is the same ratio as to the people, right? Which is the second section. So you get this like, um, so you get this this um spiritual and mystical thing imbued in the idea of the golden ratio, which I don't know if Bach was uh, referencing explicitly. I don't know if it was just part of uh, an aesthetic tradition that he was borrowing from, but because he was so so interested in um, in Christianity and in particular in certain aspects of Lutheran mysticism, I wouldn't be surprised if that's that might be one of the reasons it shows up. When you start creating music, when you start creating a new piece of music, what is it that the first thing comes to your mind? Um, let's see. Usually, um, well, ideally, I'll have a, a fragment of an idea mm -hmm. in the beginning, mm -hmm. and uh, and I'll play around with it, um, and I'll try to build on that idea, mm -hmm. and uh, and. Uh, and it's it's basically like this this kind of cauldron of I have this small fragment. It might be good. It might not be good. But mm -hmm. I want to play around. It's great. Sometimes compositions come come really fast. Like I'll just be walking somewhere. Uh, it happens a lot in traveling or in the shower or something like that. But um, and then like most of a piece will kind of just appear to me, and then it's just a matter of kind of sitting and writing it out. But more often than not, I'll have a fragment of an idea and I'll try to build on it. Absolutely. But Marcus, tell me, if you were not a mathematician, did the music that you create would be any different? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, like I said, the, the training I got, the training I got in, in terms of how to adapt my mind to difficult things using logic and how to interface logic as well as creativity that I got from from mm -hmm. Harvard mm -hmm. I mean is is really is really invaluable I think that there you know with music and with math as well actually there are as many ways to think about it as there are people um so you know I can't necessarily say that um, it's the way to go about it, but I know for me the way my mind works, um, it, it definitely draws on it definitely draws on all this uh, all these notions from um, from well, just the, 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 the process of stretching my mind from having you know dealt with and looked at mathematics in the way that I have um, and physics and these kinds of ideas. Um, it, it opens it up, and and from that actually one of the other side effects is that you know when you when you study something really difficult like mathematics from a really difficult place like Harvard, it kind of gives you the confidence that you can learn anything else that you want to learn. So, um, so if there's a topic that I'm interested in, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll just kind of pick up a book and, and learn it. And, um, and I know that, you know, for some 
for some people and even me before I studied mathematics, you know, looking at certain things, I'm like, well, this is going to be beyond me. I'll never be able to be able to understand this. Certain things in the sciences, certain things in um, certain things that are that are very technical, um, maybe in engineering. I'm like, nah, um, this, this might be beyond me. But having gone through that training, now I can kind of pick up anything, and having that that sense of freedom means that I tend to read a lot of uh, a lot of different things. Um, I'll deal with a lot of variety. Reading everything from um, from you know uh, Eastern Taoism to you know studying Frederick Nietzsche to actually just read a um, uh, read a history of India and, and mm. studied some excerpts from the was it Mahabharata? Yeah, Am I saying that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like you know stuff like that um, and and reading about the different periods, you know, all of those kind of bring to bear. Uh, uh, you know, they they kind of open up the creative field. Sure. Uh, tell me, Marcus, about your uh, jamming with Eric Lewis. Uh, it's a beautiful, wow. beautiful session and we're going to put that in the description mm -hmm. as well. How did you guys come to uh, the session? Did you guys practice or was it very uh, impromptu? So, uh, so yeah, Eric Lewis and I are, are good friends. Um, he's a, he's a musician in New York. He's a, he's about 15, 16 years older than I am. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first came to New York, I saw him play on one of my first, uh, first days, um, first jam sessions coming to New York and I was just blown away. So I'd always kind of followed him and eventually we became friends. And, um, this particular opportunity came up to perform at the TED summit and, um, and he performed at some TED events before, but he wanted to bring in, um, he's, he, he studied, he's very interested in neuroscience. So he wanted to bring in for this performance, um, the, the science aspect to mm -hmm. what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we collaborated and we've been throwing out kind of general musical ideas. Well, how do we represent things like entropy or how do we represent order or chaos or how do we represent the theory of the multiverse or you know, things like this. Yeah. And we've been talking about different kind of motifs and different uh, like musical colors we can play around with. And then, so we arrived at, uh, we arrived at TED Summit um, and, um, and, you know, having laid the conceptual groundwork, he just sat on the piano and I just pulled out my horn and, you know, we spent several hours just getting, figuring out specifically what we wanted to say. But really the, the great thing about working with a musician at that high level is that so much of the, so much of the, uh, so much of the work can live inside of the concept. And when it comes down to, um, working out the details and the arrangement, all of that is very available to us. So this, uh, so getting the topic of multiverse and getting the topic of entropy, and weaving it in yeah. music. How? What was the design like? Because entropy and multiverse are like deep topics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, these are topics in um, in in physics that uh, that you know I'm also very interested in, um, and so we spent a lot of time kind of discussing. Um, what entropy is uh, when we talk about um, movement uh, from order to chaos or um, or the arrow of time or heat transfer or um, or you know information density like these kinds of notions um, it's like how do we how do we talk about that how do you design that in music and what we kind of came up with was you know you build um, 
you build kind of outward in time. Um, imagine, imagine taking a, a cone, right? So you have a, so you have a, a cone that faces out to the right, and you start where you know you start at the tip, and then it kind of branches out um, over time and over time and space, and that's kind of what we're trying to get to musically. And wow. um, and then mm. right, so so it starts out with him just playing a note, and then I match the note, and then he plays a little wider range um, and adds complexity. And then I start to add my range and, you know, and, and, and add complexity. And the thing just kind of expands until it ends. Right? Wow. Mm-hmm. Until it just dissipates into, into, into the width and the breadth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the multiverse is, you know, that's a concept from, uh, that's a concept from um, quantum mechanics, which basically says, well, perhaps it's perhaps the, the way to interpret the probabilistic uh, properties of subatomic particles, um, or the probabilistic properties of the wave function, right, is that actually all of the possibilities are all happening at once. But um, and but we are where where we live is only one branch of those possibilities yeah. um, of those of that set of pro- possibilities. And then from there, um, but but that means that there are separate universes, right? From for every for every motion of every subatomic particle, there is some universe that is the alternative, right? That is one of you know infinite alternatives um, from ours, and that means that there are you know all these parallel universes kind of running around. Well, um, that's a that's a really fun idea. It's really hard to test, so you know it's it's up for debate in the world of physics right now. But um, um, but you know one of the things that that Eric Lewis learned to do um, is he learned how to play two different songs at the same time. Wow. Um, and so that's what he that's and, and two different songs and two different keys and two different tempos. It's not like a, it's not like he's taking a theme from one song and weaving it inside of the um, explicit kind of rhythmic and harmonic structure of an existing one. That's just kind of quoting an idea. He's literally playing a different song in a different key in a different tempo at the same time such that if you were to say turn off one of his hands, you would hear the whole other song is a different thing you turn off like and so he demonstrates that in the um in the performance and so that's his that's his take on the, the theory of the multiverse so we arranged uh we arranged a song around around him around that that features that moment for him so we're in one universe and then he jumps into another one by playing this this one by, with, with this one moment yeah um, and, and that's so that's where his neuroscience connection comes in because in order to get to that idea um, he researched a lot about what the brain what we think the brain can can't do and how to access that and practiced around you know practice around those principles wow wow that that's absolutely crazy Marcus what do you suggest in terms of using mathematics in other creative fields like for example we are in the field of writing or making movies uh india has a very rich history of mathematics there are some yeah. amazing um, world-changing mathematicians um mm-hmm. coming from india yeah. um from um for, from you know for, for at least the past two thousand years um yeah. the, what we call in the west the fibonacci sequence i was told by uh this um this princeton professor uh and um field medalist named manjo bhargava who's a who's a talented he's one of the yes. most brilliant number theorists in the world and also a brilliant tabla player he, he actually came um with me to my residency wow. at, uh, at the national museum of mathematics and he's um he's he has he has he's i think on the board or he has some official position there but he was saying that what we know in the west is a fibonacci sequence was actually uh was actually um uh 
the result of a problem that like a poetry problem and um and there was like a, a certain system of indian poetry um that was very specific to how things were metered out and if you answer the question all right how many syllables are allowed to be put in um at the end of this phrase if it's this length right the 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 correct answer for different phrase lengths is the Fibonacci sequence, and it was actually um, Fibonacci's father, who was a trader um, in the Middle East, got that information from Arab traders who had been um, who had been uh, traveling back and forth from India, and then brought it to the West. Right, so like that's a that that's like a, a very famous numerical sequence in the in the West, as well as a whole bunch of other things that Fibonacci brought. Um, but that comes from India. Explicit uh, values, explicit. Um, Equations for uh, for trigonometric functions like originated in India like 800 years before they showed up in Europe. So I mean, there's there's so much there's so much to be covered um, that that that'd be I don't know if it's documented in um in a movie or if it's been dramatized, but there's so much of that in um in Indian history that I mean that seems like it would be awesome too. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, and. Of course, uh, you would definitely recommend a creative person to also go and, you know, check maths, become a mathematician while they're Mm. pursuing other creative fields. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, learn learn everything you can. For me, the the opening to creativity and imagination was through math and music. But really what's most important is that opening happens and I think that you get that by um, by being curious about something that's outside of your direct field um, and as you as you bring those as you bring like a bunch of very different ideas together that weren't conceived in the same place you're able to generate new ideas from very rich source material so like I said for me it's math and music for somebody else it might be you know um, poetry and bird watching um, and you know just are able to, to come up with something very brilliant from observing you know migration patterns of birds and, and you know the the way um, and 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 meter in poetry. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sure. So, so yeah, it's, just, sure. it's great to live in a, in a in a world of curiosity and imagination. I think. Sure. And are you sort of connected to the jazz musicians in India? Are you have any plans of coming to India and performing? Are you guys aware about India? How it looks like? I would love to to perform <laughs> in India. I, I've had some friends who um who uh, spent who spent some time in India. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know jazz musicians in India particularly, um, but no, I would love to hook that up. Um, at the furthest, uh, I've been to, I've only been to, um, in Asia, I've been to Hong Kong and Taiwan um, and Korea, but I haven't made it as far as India and I would, I would really love to go there. Um, I hope we can travel again soon. So, uh, of course, we are all under lockdown and I'm thinking that I should also do a quick course on mathematics. Uh, What do you guys think about that? Uh, Tell me your thoughts, you know, where to find us. Uh, Our WhatsApp number in the description is there. And do not forget to subscribe to us on any of the 15 podcasting platforms that we are present on. I hope you guys are taking good care of yourself uh, in this lockdown uh, phase and I hope it's going to quickly get over and we will be free birds. Uh, That's a wild thought. Uh, And on that note, uh, I'm going to end this conversation taking you through this wonderful poem by Mary Olivia. It's called The Wild Geese and I encourage you to definitely check out the entire poem. I'm just going to read some of the lines that will resonate with today's times. It starts like this, that you do not have to be good. 
You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And it ends like this, that whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. <laughs> 